The Air Force was at the finish line, about to award a $5 billion cybersecurity contract and pulled the plug. The decision left hundreds of vendors frustrated, disappointed, and out hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars in proposal costs. In his reporter's notebook, Executive Executive Editor Jason Miller writes about why the Air Force's reason for ending this 18-month acquisition effort may surprise you. Jason joins me now to discuss. Jason, how are we doing today? I'm good. I'm good. This is a great story, Eric. I mean, this is a fascinating uh, look into government contracting. Yeah, and it seems as if nobody really had an answer for us at first. So why did the Air Force decide to cancel this cybersecurity solicitation just like that? It surprises, I think, everyone involved in the enterprise cyber capabilities, the EC2 acquisition, potentially a $5 billion multiple award, indefinite delivery, indefinite quantity contract. They've been going on. They did all the industry days. They did RFIs. They did pre-solicitation. They they met with vendors. They, they did all this work, and they were actually just posted something on Sam.gov that said, we're going to make an award soon. And then there goes the rug right out from under uh, the, the all these vendors who bid on it. And the reason why, Eric, too many vendors bid on the procurement. And and, and all the years of, of me covering federal procurement, and I talked to a lot of federal procurement experts, former acquisition experts at VA, at GSA, uh, you know, within the Homeland Security Department, and they all were surprised because they had too many bidders, 250 more or more bidders, uh, Air Force said. And many times you hear about procurements being canceled because of a lack of competition. You know, they were asking for something so arcane that nobody bid on it or they only had one bidder and they wanted more competition. They canceled contracts because industries come back to them and said, this is not a good path. Don't do it. You know, you will not be successful. And they've terminated acquisition efforts for, you know, an assortment of other reasons, lack of funding, a change in direction. It just too many protests, but never, never I've heard for too much interest. You talked about those points of how strange it is for those covering it and those in the industry. But how unusual is it for the Air Force to actually do something like this where they just cancel a contract because there's too much interest? Yeah, I think I think that uh, that's what really stood out to me when I talked to, for instance, Mike Smith, a former strategic uh, sourcing director at Homeland Security, now executive at GovCon RX. He says it just comes back to not enough market research. You have to understand what the industry can support, what the vendors are interested in. And when you have a five billion dollar enterprise cybersecurity capabilities type of contract that you're looking for, you know, all the pieces and parts of cybersecurity you got to understand that there's going to be a lot of interest. And if you're going to have a lot of interest, how do you kind of put together a solicitation uh, through your market research to understand who, what, when, how, why, all those you know basic things? And it just seemed to him, again, he was not involved in it. He didn't bid on it. He wasn't on any team. He didn't consult on it. He goes, it just seems like the market research has failed them. And, and that's really why this was so surprising, because the Air Force is not new to market research, right? This is not something that that, oh, we've never done a big solicitation before. So I guess this is why it's surprising. And the other piece of this is, and I talked to Jim Williams, a former executive at GSA, at IRS, at Homeland Security, and he said the same thing. Market research among agencies actually is getting a lot better. They're really much smarter about it. You're seeing things like reverse industry days. You're seeing things like GSA has launched a market research as a service tool, and they've had over 3,000 requests for information go through this. Uh, and, and their top user of the market research as a service, guess who it is, Eric? Who? Tell me. The Air Force. Come on. Uh, it was an easy one for you. So, again, this is why it's so unusual for them to have, have struggled with this. And so what you're saying is that the 
agencies over the years have been using this market research to narrow their focus on what exactly they need out of a contract and maybe the Air Force skipped that step this time around? Or they didn't ask the right questions or they didn't go far enough in it. Uh, you know, I talked to one former Air Force executive uh, who requested anonymity and, and what th- they told me was the Air Force probably and, and did not conduct these one-on-one sessions with vendors. You can't conduct 250 one-on-one sessions, but you could conduct a certain number with large companies, a certain number with small companies, really get the feeling of how excited they are, how they would bid this, how this would come about, uh, really talk to them about their acquisition strategy. And, and that's where this one person that I spoke with said they believe the Air Force fell flat. Uh, the, the other folks I've talked to said, you know, when you do industry days, those are really important, but it's really a one-way conversation. Contractors don't stand up and go, I will bid this this way and you know, explain their whole strategy. So it's really they're listening and they're taking in. And I think that's where the Air Force may have fallen short is not enough research, not enough understanding of how industry sees such a huge opportunity. Again, $5 billion IDIQ type contract doesn't mean they will spend $5 billion, but a ceiling of $5 billion, there's always going to be a lot of interest in a big uh, contract like this. We're speaking with Federal News Network's executive editor, Jason Miller. And what about those vendors who spent all the time and money, you know, trying to make this bid? And will it make some wary about working with the Air Force in the future, potentially? That's a really good, great question because it's unclear, but it is disappointing about the fact that there are 18 months into this and again, almost to the finish line, and then they cancel it. Eric, I was told that this costs, you know, small vendors anywhere from a quarter of a million dollars to a third of a million dollars. And this could have cost large vendors more than a million dollars worth of bid and proposal costs. Now, remember, this is time, energy, focus. If you're focusing on this EC2 contract, you're not focusing on something else. So there's an opportunity cost loss. I think there's there's a huge frustration all around. And, and listen, at the same time, the folks I've talked to do give Air Force credit. Their combat command, which was running this acquisition for the Air Force, they made a hard decision. They could have gone forward they could have said, well, we're already, you know, 99% there. Let's just go to 100%. So they do give them credit for deciding that in the end, their acquisition strategy was problematic. And I did get some comments from the ACC. And one of the things they told me was, we did look at other options. We did say, okay, what else could we have done? And in the end, other evaluation methodologies, redefining it, what they call qualified offers, all of that would have been too big of a change, too substantial of a change to the EC2 solicitation. And really, they just felt like the only option they had was to cancel it. All right. So wiping the slate clean, where do we go from here? Obviously, the Air Force has a need for those cyber capabilities. Otherwise, they wouldn't have put the contract out there in the first place. So what is their plan going forward? They're relooking at their strategy. The Air Combat Command spokesperson said they're going to analyze how to meet these cybersecurity needs. Could they go back with another EC2 Part 2 type contract? And in the meantime, they're going to go out with individual needs, either, again, uh, full and open competition on SAM.gov. They may look at the GSA schedules or other GSA contracts like Alliant 2, and then other multiple award vehicles that the Department of Defense or the Air Force currently run. So, uh, you know, again, credit to them for understanding the needs. But again, they're already 18 months behind on people waiting to use this contract. Did folks in the Air Force say, well, I'll hold off putting the solicitation out until EC2 is awarded? And then, okay, now we're using older technology. So there's a whole kind of trickle-down effect that I think there's a big concern from folks I talked to. And Eric, if I could just add one more kind of aside, this is really epitomizes the bigger challenge across government. The proliferation of 
IDIQ, multiple award contracts for what I'll call common IT or professional services. Not that what Air Force was asking for was, quote unquote, you know, help desk services or tech refresh. But uh, as you saw, a lot of people provide cybersecurity services and the, the, the agencies are not having to justify the need for these multiple award big contracts when they could use, again, what you heard the Air Force say, existing contracts like GSA schedules, like uh, Alliant 2, like Department of Defense and other Air Force, uh, you know, current vehicles. And without leadership, you know, pro, you know uh, political leadership from the Office of Federal Procurement Policy, I think this is why this proliferation is such a problem. Federal News Network's executive editor, Jason Miller, until our next surprise. All right, Eric, thank you very much. And you can find more of Jason's reporting at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, 
I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, And we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. 
And it didn't go as I had hoped. And I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with an intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, 
thinking about, can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life, and I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, And I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years, yeah. um, and work alongside you. Uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.